I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a very special episode. We are going to do a medical case today, which is exciting. We haven't done that in a couple of episodes. And for the first time ever, we have a guest here with us to present the case. We have a captive in the closet. We do. (laughs) Help me. So everybody, please welcome to the podcasting closet, Elena. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Elena is the lead internal medicine nurse at Huntsville Veterinary Specialists and Emergency She is going to read the case for us today, so let's just dive right in. As always, when we present a case on the podcast, it is presented anonymously. That means we don't reveal the veterinarian who treated the case, the pet owner, or the pet, and some details of the case have been changed to help protect the patient's identity. Okay, take it away, Elena. (laughs) All right, so the case that I brought to you guys is um, about a five-year-old neuter male lab mix who we're going to call Benny. He presented through emergency services for epistaxis or uh, bleeding from the nose. The owners reported that the patient had been sneezing for about the past two weeks and noted a mild bleed from the left nostril a week ago. They went to their primary care veterinarian and they initially diagnosed the patient with allergies and a potential upper respiratory infection. The veterinarian prescribed hydroxyzine and doxycycline. At first, the patient seemed to respond to the medication, but then the severe epistaxis from the left nose occurred again, and leading to the ER visit. The bleeding was unilateral and no discharge from the right nostril at this time. Mm. So in emergency medicine, the first thing you usually do is triage the patient, correct? Correct. So the patient was brought immediately to the treatment area where a cold compress was applied to the nose, um, and they placed 0.2 mLs of epinephrine in the left nostril. Luckily, hemostasis was observed. You know, when they present with bleeding from the nose, it can be really scary looking for sure, Mm -hmm. because then the dog is also like, and then like it's like a blood splatter situation all over everyone, the owner of the room and everything. It's like a bludgeoning crime thing. Yeah. Yeah. All over the treatment area, (laughs) all over the workers. Across the face. Yep. Somehow in veterinary school, I missed the memo about being able to put epinephrine into the nose. And it wasn't until much later that I uh, read about it and I was like, oh, uh, okay, well, this is going to be so much frippin' easier, you know, <laughs> right. to get this to I mean, stop. You, I mean, I don't, you could do epinephrine in the endotracheal too whenever you're doing CPR, so why not do it I up the nose, right? <laughs> I just, it had never somehow occurred to me <laughs> till I had one that was bleeding really bad mm-hmm. one time. That was on general practice, and mm-hmm. so we actually didn't have epinephrine at that general practice. You know how it is, but mm-hmm. anyway. Right. Uh, but yeah, so a lot of people might not know that epinephrine in the nose is a way to control epistaxis. I think sometimes people think of epinephrine as like a scary drug. You know, they associate it with like anaphylaxis mm-hmm. and like CPR, so right? Used when scary things happen. That's exactly right. I mean, and bleeding nose is scary, but uh, mm-hmm. so everybody look up epinephrine. You can put it in the nose. Okay, so now that the patient, Benny, is stable, the bleeding has stopped, 
we need to start building a differential list. And it's going to be quite a doozy because there are tons of reasons why we might bleed from the nose. Something inside the nose, okay? Uh, a foreign body. Yeah, nasal tumor. You got hit in the face. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, did you this know, dog have about. an accident? Yeah. Right. Uh, you could have a tooth uh, abscess, periapical abscess. Mm-hmm. Maybe they ruptured, and that might cause some bleeding from the nose. Could be a fungus among us. Yep. Could be fungal disease, absolutely. Or just normal, like, idiopathic rhinitis. Seeing it's like just some inflammation in the nose that yeah. we don't know what causes it. Yeah, like when you get a sinus infection yeah. and everything, you've mm-hmm. been sneezing and then you get a gusher. Yep. It might happen mm-hmm. in a dog, too. Or nasal fistula, okay, if there's a communication between the mouth and the nose that we don't know about and it gets inflamed. There's one that I've been learning about a lot lately. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly. Is okay. it Ish. It's leishmaniasis. It's, Thank you. Yeah. Because I've like I've read that word about 10 million times. Yeah. But I've never heard it had anybody say it. So I'm yeah. like, in my head, I might be saying it wrong. So. Oh, I have so many stories about that uh, girl. Lord of the Rings is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Uh, oh, <laughs> so no. Say that again. I need okay. To practice it. I think it's leishmaniasis. I think you're right. Leishmaniasis. leishmaniasis. Bless you. Yeah. All right. So then you might have something going on systemically in the body that is making blood come out of your nose. So like if you're not clotting well, for example. Mm -hmm. So any type of coagulopathy, genetic diseases, rat poison, if your platelets aren't working. Thrombocytopenia. Yeah, you don't have platelets. Right, or you just don't have them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Where did they go? Yeah. Bye-bye. Vasculitis. So Mm -hmm. blood vessel inflammation. High blood pressure. High blood pressure. All really good differentials there. And then you got like less common stuff, okay? Uh, When I was doing the literature review for this case, I ran across a a type of worm that I had never heard of before that is called the French heartworm. Mm -hmm. The scientific name is Angiostrongylus vasorum. And the primary hosts are the fox and the dog. Uh, you get this from eating mollusks, frogs, or food infected with slime from slugs and snails. Stay with them, frog legs. And it is endemic in parts of Europe. Is it specifically France? Did you, I, <laughs> no, I don't think, I think definitely yes, France, but like it, there's, you know, not uh, some sort of impenetrable wall around. Sounds so scary. I think it's generally, it's endemic in Europe. So if the patient has a travel history, that'd be important. Or, you know what? Some of our listeners are uh, in Europe. (laughs) Hi. Hi. Watch out for the French artwork. Watch out for the French artwork. Does it wear a beret? Mm, Probably. Does it say, we, we, eat a croissant? It might. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Please do not send us angry emails about that. Okay. (laughs) Send them to Elena. Okay. (laughs) So that's a pretty comprehensive list, I think, Mm -hmm. to get us started. Dagum, that's a long list. Uh, so what test would we want to consider based on those differentials? Okay, yeah, it's just a long list. Okay, so platelet issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, if your platelets are low, we can tell that with a CBC, right? Mm-hmm. So probably just go ahead and do a minimum database just for funsies and to look for red flags. So as we've mentioned before, a minimum database is a complete blood count, a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. Then a coagulation profile would help us rule out a coagulopathy or bleeding disorder. 
Now, it's ideal to send these types of tests to the reference lab. Uh, you can have some falsely elevated values when you run them on the in-house test. That's a very sensitive test to run. So in a perfect world, we would send those to the lab. However, in the real world, sometimes you got to know right now what the clotting times are, okay? <laughs> there are point-of-care PT and PTT tests. I don't know of any other point-of-care coagulopathy testing. I think those are the, the only, only two. two that I know of. Yeah, so it might be that maybe on a, like, Vinny's case, weekend ER, you do those. Uh, maybe that's something that you then would send to the reference lab later to get a more comprehensive picture if you need to. And then um, you can actually send off specific assays to test for the presence of anticoagulant rodenticides. I did not Ooh. know that until I was researching for this episode. Exciting. It is. Now, that's a test that's not as common. Now, I don't know if you can just call up your general reference lab and just and send it in. So you might need to do a little bit of research on that to find out where to send it, but they do exist. Okay, blood pressure. We talked about hypertension as a cause, so grab the blood pressure. That's pretty easy. And you do need to remember that hypertension that causes a nosebleed might be episodic. So one normal reading doesn't rule out hypertension as the cause necessarily. A fully anesthetized oral examination with dental radiography is mm -hmm. necessary to rule out trauma for, from like an oral foreign body uh, or a nasal fistula or a periapical abscess. Say it again for the people in the back. That's right. And then CT scan, if we got to look for a mass in the nose, okay, higher level imaging, maybe rhinoscopy. Although nose size does limit rhinoscopy, if you got a little bitty dog, we probably can't fit it up there, but a big old dog, you can look up there. If we see a mass, nasal biopsies. And then lastly, testing for fungal diseases. So like quite a workup. Mm -hmm. And uh, right off the bat, we got a problem because this is a lot of stuff and this is going to be expensive as hell. Okay. And... In an ER situation, like in Benny's case, not necessarily possible all on the weekend. So before we move forward with the rest of the case here, I just want to just put a disclaimer out there or make a statement, which is that working up cases of epistaxis is difficult. And many times the pet is stable and the owners are like, oh, it can't be anything super bad. My pet's always been healthy. You might face a lot of pressure from owners to, like, just give some antibiotics, you know, or just, like, band-aid it and that kind of a thing. And, you know, we all face those pressures. A lot of owners, pet owners, might be kind of hesitant to do a full workup because it's expensive. You're talking about significant imaging, biopsies, you know, major stuff. Um, and you're talking about probably multiple anesthetic episodes because you're talking about dentistry. You're talking about higher level imaging. And I can't think of a single place short of like a teaching hospital, maybe, where all that could be done in one anesthetic episode. So I say all that to say my point, which is I know that it's really frustrating to talk to owners about these things, especially in the context of an ER visit where the owners kind of are like, Let's go. I've got weekend plans. Like, just give me some sort of thing and get me out the door. And I completely can empathize with the pressure that everyone feels uh, to kind of just put a Band-Aid on it. I do think, though, that it's super important right when epistaxis first occurs to go through all these things with the owner. 
even if they don't want to hear about it. <laughs> um, because something like a bacterial rhinitis is very uncommon. So your dog bleeding from the nose is probably not due to a bacterium. <laughs> and that is that is what I would like to say. <laughs> I feel disclaimer. So, yeah, uh, I just uh, I feel for all my vets out there. I know it is really stressful. But I, I would just like to encourage everyone and send positive vibes and everything. And, you know, just uh, when you see these cases come in, talk to the owners about working them up. Because it, this is going to be a, they, all of these cases need an extensive work. Hmm. So what do you do with this case in particular? So in this case, um, they did blood work. Um, and they also did a coag panel. The CBC showed some mild neutrophilia, normal clotting times, Woo-hoo. and the blood pressure was normal. They had talked about further testing, including imaging of the nose, um, but they couldn't really do it on ER time. And the patient's stable? Yeah, the patient's stable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I am super excited that our in-house coagulation times are normal. Now, I mentioned earlier that in-house PT and PTT, you can have some false elevations, but I've never heard of them being falsely normal, you know, like, so I'm going to believe, I I feel like we believe that, right? The in-house PT and PTT are normal. I I believe that that, and I think we can probably go ahead and pretty safely rule out a coagulopathy, or at least put it maybe at the bottom of the list for now. And then the platelet numbers were normal. I mean, you could always do a blood smear as well. If the yeah. platelets were lower, do a blood smear and confirm it because you can always have clumping on the edges and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a good thing to do as well. Absolutely. Something super easy, doesn't cost a lot. Go ahead and double check it. Yeah. If they're like, Doc, we don't want any type of thing. Just give us the meds. Well, you know, we can do the blood smear for real cheap on that one. Mm-hmm. You know, make my psychology nerd happy. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Elena, uh, what happened next in our case? So, the doctor prescribed epinephrine intranasally as needed um, and also Union Bio. Uh, the ER doctor recommended an internal medicine consultation for further diagnostics. Mm. So, sometimes on ER, you just have to stabilize the patient until it can get somewhere for further testing. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like they did a really good job with Mm -hmm. this. Let's go back really quickly to that herbal supplement you mentioned, Elena. Will you say the name of it again? Union Bio. I'm so glad that I didn't have to be the first person (laughs) to say this name. I, like JJ was saying earlier, have only ever seen it written. And now I've prescribed it for a patient before, but when I was talking to the owner, I was like, look, I can't pronounce this, okay? It's like, (laughs) like, I don't know what this says. But, I'm, but I would like for you to get it for your dog, okay? <laughs> and they were like, sure. So uh, I just did a little bit of research about it, just peripherally. This supplement dates back to the earliest, earliest century, the early 20th century. And say Union again. Union Bio. U- Union. Union Bio. Union Bio. Okay. The Union Providence of China. Main active ingredient appears to be pseudoginseng root. And it has a high concentration of hemostatic constituents. And that is why we use it for bleeding. Mm -hmm. Pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened next with the case? So the owners were able to pursue a consultation with internal medicine. Yay! (laughs) 
<laughs> these are the clients that we want. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, look, this this requires a workup, you know, mm-hmm. get, them, get them to the place. Don't dick around with a case like this. Get it to the place it needs to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Gave them the options, and they were like, let's just go straight to the specialist. Mm-hmm. Which Glad is, they were able to, too. Yeah, me yeah, too. Everybody absolutely. Is, absolutely. So the internist talked to the owners about epistaxis um, and that it's typically associated with inflammatory, infectious, or neoplastic destruction of the nasal epithelium and erosion to the underlying blood vessels. And that's where you get the epistaxis from. It was discussed to the owner to do dental prophylaxis before doing um, a CT scan and rhinoscopy. She always says this to all of our rhinitis patients because dental procedure with radiographs is going to be a lot cheaper than CT and rhinoscopy. Sure. Whereas if you do CT, if you just jump into CT and rhinoscopy, you could still come back as lymphocytic, plasmatic rhinitis and they would still recommend a dental so why not do the dental first sure save your money see if that works Mm -hmm. and so forth so elena uh you were telling me that a pretty high percentage of dogs with chronic uh, inflammatory rhinitis that's just inflammation of the nose have associated dental disease and that it can be resolved in a lot of these cases what what percentage of cases was that i think it's 55 percent okay okay in you actually got that resource for me or that reference for me. I'm going to go ahead and mention it now. Now, we always put all of our references in the show notes and on social media, but uh, that particular statistic is from a paper called Suspect Odontogenic Infection Etiology for Canine Lymphoplasmacytic Rhinitis. And that's uh, in the Journal of Veterinary Dentistry. So if you want to take a look at that paper, uh, that reference will be in the show notes. Uh, So scroll down. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we discussed with the owner is that this could be resolved with just dentistry alone. Mm -hmm. And we just, you know, do dentals, check back in four to six weeks, see if it's improved. If it's improved, great. If not, then we can do further diagnostics at that time. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. They said, let's just go ahead and let's do dentistry. Okay. So... At the time of dentistry, the primary care veterinarian was told by the owners that the owner had cancer at that time, was recently diagnosed with cancer. Gosh. And uh, yeah, sad. And um, the oncologist, their human oncologist, have recommended doing fungal testing in the dog before starting chemotherapy. Okay. So urine and serum were submitted for the fungal antigen testing and included screening for histoplasmosis, blastomycosis, and aspergillosis. The fungal testing showed a positive result for aspergillosis. Oh, no. Okay. Well, let's talk about aspergillosis in the nose. Okie doke. Nasal aspergillosis, a.k.a. upper respiratory tract aspergillosis, is a fungal disease that affects the sinonasal and sinoorbital areas of dogs and cats. Sinonasal meaning the nose and the sinuses, and sinoorbital meaning the sinuses and the area around the eyeball. Yeah. In dogs, 99% of cases are sinonasal, whereas sinoorbital aspergillosis is much more common in cats. Makes sense. They got them big old eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. But sinonasal infections can progress to sinoorbital infections if they're not identified and stopped soon enough. 
both non-invasive and invasive infections occur. And an invasive infection is where we start to see that erosion into the soft tissues that would create bleeding. Dogs usually experience the non-invasive form, whereas cats usually experience the invasive form. And then before we move on, this is a really important point. Nasal aspergillosis is not the same thing as disseminated or systemic aspergillosis, okay? So we've talked on the podcast before about blastomycosis and histoplasmosis, disseminated, meaning spread throughout the body. In nasal aspergillosis, we're talking about it confined to the nasal cavity, okay? If we're finding it more than two areas in the body, then it's considered disseminated. A sinonasal aspergillosis does not occur with the disseminated form of the disease. That was interesting. And disseminated disease is obviously super bad. So you, you never want to like give the owner the prognosis for systemic aspergillosis when the dog just has nasal aspergillosis because the prognosis is very different. Guarded prognosis with disseminated aspergillosis. And we'll talk about the prognosis for nasal aspergillosis a little bit later in the podcast. So how do patients contract this disease? Aspergillus species are saprophytic fungi that are found throughout the world. Um, if you ever look at them underneath a microscope, they kind of look like little flowers, and kind of like dandelions, except for the petals are the spores that shed and affect you. So mm-hmm. cute, but deadly. Oh. <laughs> Bad deadly. Just like me. <laughs> There are hundreds of species, and these organisms are typically considered opportunistic. Transmission is usually through inhalation. In dogs, Aspergillus fumigatus causes most infections. It is found in compost materials, stables, and barns, anywhere with hay and straw. After discussion with the owners in Benny's case, it actually turns out that they had a very large compost pile at their home. Uh One of the main reasons the oncologist was like, Let's test your dog for fungal disease. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So funny fact, the oncologist uh, found out that they had a compost pile in their backyard and had actually recommended that the dog have fungal testing. So it was the oncologist that recommended it. Like the human oncologist. Correct. Correct. And at the initial consultation, the internist was not aware of the compost pile. It was not something that was mentioned gotcha. at the consultation. Gotcha. And that's why type of further testing wasn't done at that time. Gotcha. Dogs and cats who are thought to be more likely to contract nasal aspergillosis if they live in an environment with significant fungal contaminations, nasal foreign bodies and prior facial trauma are also predisposing factors for both species. Aspergillosis has been documented following the use of implants to repair the nasal cavity in dogs. So dogs that have had surgery, they have nasal implants, you know, in the face. These guys are going to be more prone to infection. Mm-hmm. Infection can occur in otherwise healthy individuals, but infection in immunocompromised dogs has also been reported, including those with cancer, renal or liver disease, or those on immunosuppressive medications like steroids or chemotherapy. Mm. What are typical physical examination findings in dogs with nasal aspergillosis? Well, there's a long list, okay? Uh, So nasal discharge, it might be purulent, which is just like, you know, don't say it. (laughs) Pussy. (laughs) You're going to say it. (laughs) Or or hemorrhagic, bloody. You might see epistaxis, like in Benny's case. There might be pain on palpation of the nose. 
ulceration of the rhinarium, okay, the area around the nose might be ulcerated. And you might see sneezing, pawing at the face, increased respiratory noise when they breathe in or breathe out that's coming from the nose. Evidence of osteomyelitis of the frontal sinus. Obviously, you have to take x-rays to see that, okay? But it is technically a sign. And uh, if infection is only present in the frontal sinuses, then you might see no nasal discharge at all. Unilateral nasal discharge occurs initially in about half of the infected dogs, uh, but it generally does progress to bilateral nasal discharge if if it goes on long enough. Chronic nasal discharge in these patients is really common. In one study, the average duration of nasal discharge before diagnosis was three and a half months. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. If there is infection of the orbit, so the bony hole where the eyeball sits, or period, what? I gotta, (laughs) you know, I gotta be descriptive. Okay. My bony hole. My bony hole. (laughs) Look, that is the technical situation. Okay, or periocular (laughs) tissues, so tissue around the eye. You might see ocular discharge, exophthalmos, which means like a bulging eye. You might see lagophthalmos, which is a difficulty fully closing the eyelid. You might see exposure keratitis, and there might be pain upon opening the mouth. That is like a classic sign of a retrobulbar abscess right there. Central nervous system signs are rare and typically occur only if there is progression of the disease uh, into the cribiform plate, which is that bone between the nose and the brain. Ugh. Gross. Typically, multiple methods of diagnosis are needed to confirm infection. And there's a lot of different types of testing that we're going to consider. We're going to talk about it here in just a little bit, all of the different ones. But just remember that like a single positive test doesn't mean like, boom, this is the diagnosis. Right. So typically, rule of thumb, you need to have at least two results to support a diagnosis of aspergillosis before the diagnosis is even considered confirmed, meaning some combination of imaging or direct visualization of fungal colonies, that's typically with a rhinoscopy, Mm -hmm. um, positive culture, serology, or urine antigen test results. So you need to have two positives from those before being like, this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And evidence of something in the oh, yeah. 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 So we're going to discuss the test results in depth here in a minute. Um, but let's start with the basics. What sort of abnormalities would be seen with basic testing, um, say, minimum database? Yeah. So the CBC may be normal. Leukocytosis with neutrophilia and monocytosis have been documented. Uh, lymphocyte count is typically normal. In cats, leukocytosis, neutrophilia, and eosinophilia are uncommon. Biochemistry profile, usually normal in dogs. In cats, uh, an elevated globulin has been reported. Um, urinalysis, nothing really you can find on urinalysis. What about with imaging like x-rays or uh, CT? Okay. So there's lots of different imaging modalities that you might use when you're working up an epistaxis case. So if we're talking about like radiography, a dorsoventral intraoral view is what's going to give you the most information about nasal disease. Now that obviously requires anesthesia, okay? And you cannot be achieved on an awake patient. 
The rostrocaudal or skyline view is used to assess the frontal sinuses. And typically what you're going to see is lysis of the turbinates and an abnormal amount of radiolucency. So basically, instead of like, look at the pretty bone, it's like, that bone looks all... <laughs> that bone ain't there. <laughs> yeah, the bone is like all fucked up. It's, it's like, like something moth <laughs> Yeah, exactly. it's like looks all shitty. Yep. Okay. That's my, that's my professional... Assessment. That bone looks shitty. <laughs> that bone looks yeah. shitty. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> it ain't right. We might have to cut this part out, but actually, um, I was, when I was working at the ER last weekend, uh, someone that I worked with was like, hey, I don't know if you remember, but the first time that I ever worked with you, you came into a room while we were uh, doing something and you just looked at the patient and went, shit, and then turned around and left. And I was like, yep. <laughs> Sounds about like yeah, that, that sounds accurate. And <laughs> the next day, a different person was like, you know, the first time I met Dr. Grider, I was in there in radiology holding an animal, and we called her to come look at the x-rays, and she walked in and went, this looks like shit. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sorry. That does sound on brand. I'm that's, not going to lie. That sounds about right. Yeah, that, <laughs> sorry. So I guess the moral of the story is I need to tone it down at <laughs> When I'm nah. as long as you're not putting it in like official documentation, like you put radiographs interpretation, shit. Right. Or, I don't write that. <laughs> you don't see those TikToks where medical right. professionals are like pretending to do their notes, and it's yes. like the you know this is a very eloquent and nice thing, and then they play it back, and then they're like, "This motherfucker, this is gonna die for sure," and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's definitely what it's like. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so ultrasounds. Okay, ultrasound might be helpful when you have sinoorbital disease. Okay, so you can take that ultrasound and look and see if you have a retrobulbar asp. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I read, I, I misread the line. I sometimes have a retrobulbar asp. <laughs> God damn it. All right. <clears throat> you can use ultrasound to identify a retrobulbar abscess. Masses, and then you can use the ultrasound to aspirate any type of mass or abscess that you see. That's a lot of masses. Right. Thank you, JJ. Welcome. <laughs> All right. CT. CT is more sensitive than radiography in the detection of lesions associated with nasal aspergillosis. Now, CT or MRI will show turbinate lysis. You might see increased or decreased soft tissue density in the nasal cavity. You might see lysis of the cribiform plate if shit is going downhill pretty bad. Potentially, there might be increased density in the sinuses. Uh, you might see a retrobulbar mass that way. Or you might see displacement of the eye, the soft tissue masses inside the nasal passages, and or lysis of the paranasal bones. CT is generally what you will want to order. But I guess if you can't do CT, you could do MRI. I read about it in... Yeah. In literature is what I'm saying, but I would choose CT. And and in my experience, MRI is going to be a lot more of a lengthy process yeah. than CT. CT is and pretty more quick. expensive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, it's a lot more expensive. I wonder if in those cases I was reading about, they maybe did an MRI because of, like, the rare CNS signs or something. That's, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. I was wondering if maybe it had then crossed over into that brain, like it's eroded that bone right there. It's gone into the brain, and we then have 
some neurologic signs and they go to see a neurologist before they see an internist. And then mm-hmm. the neurologist would be like MRIs. Yeah. So. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay. And so then the last one we talked a little bit about earlier, rhinoscopy. Just use a camera and look up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, but if it's a baby tiny dog, uh, you probably can't do that very good. Uh, I think they do make rhinoscopes that small. Mm-hmm. I have one. Um, you have one. I have one. Well, you just can't do biopsies with it. Okay. So I got two. So you can look, you but can you look. can't pinch. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Or you're going in blind. Okay. So. You're like, going to be out when you biopsy. Correct. Yeah. Like you're taking, you take the rhinoscope out and then you biopsy. Ooh, I hate blind nasal biopsies. So this is why. I've done it before. It's crunchy. And this like is it. why we always do CT scan before rhinoscopy. Yeah. Right. Because if we're dealing with a mass or fungal disease or anything like that. Yeah. And you're doing a blind thing, you got to make sure that it's not involving the brain. Right. Because we don't need get, to get brain tissue. We don't want to get normal brain back Correct. on your histopath. So Correct. I guess if it's squishy that and happened. not crunchy, then that's bad. You can't tell. You can't tell. <laughs> yeah. It's crunchy? No, no, no. Uh, so the, the turbinates might be squishy. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you don't want to go. I mean, if, say, the nasal turbinates are all fucked up and they're not hardly even there anymore, mm-hmm. and you're just reaching up there till you grab something, right. you might, you something might be bad. grabbing something. Yeah. You something might be we don't grabbing somebody's memory. Exactly. They in, don't forget how to sit. In veterinary school, like, I did, look, I do not know of this happening firsthand, but, like, I had to take a nasal biopsy one time. And before I took the nasal biopsy, the clinician told me, like, you know, almost like the campfire ghost story situation about, like, the normal brain biopsy coming back and everything. And so I did briefly cry before I had to go do that procedure. I didn't biopsy the brain, okay? (laughs) I didn't. But, you know, you could accidentally. Apparently, Yeah, my internist had told me that that had happened while she was, yeah. I guess in her residence. She had the same campfire she, story? Yeah, had the okay. same campfire story and whatever. And, of course, she's she's so bright and she's so optimistic every time. So she's telling me the story with the biggest smile on her face. <laughs> and I'm like, what? what? Excuse me? That sounds terrible. Why are you that smiling? That sounds horrible. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's leave that topic. Okay. <laughs> sounds good. So what about other types of testing like biopsies and cultures? So serology. Uh, the one that we most commonly use is enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA. None of these serologic tests um, are designed to be the sole means of confirming a diagnosis. False negatives might occur in early uh, infection with immunocompromised patients and in focal infections. Mm-hmm. The type of ELISA test performed in this case was a galactomannan antigen ELISA test. Uh, this test is performed on urine, and it can be also performed on serum, and it's available through MiraVista Veterinary Diagnostics. The antigen test is used most often for diagnosing systemic aspergillosis. False positive results can occur with administration of certain antibiotics and plasmolite solution. Cross-reactions can occur with other fungi, including penicillium, histoplasma, Alternaria, Plastomyces, and Palosomyces species, considered the most sensitive test. This is most sensitive. In fact, the urine test is more sensitive than the serum. I uh, think this is so exciting. You know, when I was reading uh, about this 
uh, topic, the serology tests you can do. I mostly saw the MiraVista test as an option for systemic aspergillosis, but then I found several message board posts where it had been used to diagnose nasal aspergillosis. And this is the test uh, that was used in Benny's case, right? Correct. This is the test. You can also do cytology, which is like doing a nasal swab and looking underneath a microscope and so forth. Um, You may see something. You can do a culture if you do a nasal swab, but this is actually not really recommended anymore, given that we can all be exposed to it and you could get like basically a false positive and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why we like doing the serology. Biopsy, such as doing one via rhinoscopy or aspirates via ultrasound guided aspiration of the retrobulbar masses. Um, you can actually see these organisms, and it's pretty definitive if you if you do this. Like I said before, culturing a swab of the nasal discharge will not yield accurate results. In one study, both healthy dogs and those confirmed with nasal neoplasia grew aspergillus or penicillium species on cultured nasal swabs. Yeah, I think it's really uh, tempting when you have a dog with all this nasal discharge. Let's just swab it and send it in, you're going to grow a lot of shit. And it's not necessarily the cause of this dog's problem. So going back to what Elena just said, that study where they saw uh, significant uh, numbers of healthy dogs, so dogs without a problem, and then those that ultimately did have a nasal tumor. Some of those, based on swab, you could misdiagnose with fungal disease and F it up. Same thing with just normal inflammation in the nose, too. When mm-hmm. you have normal inflammation, you're going to get nasal discharge as well. Yeah. So, same thing. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about cultures, we're not talking about swabbing the nose and calling it a day. We're talking about getting all up in there. No, no. Go okay. up in there. Yeah, up All in the there. way. So, if you're going culture, this would be like, we did a rhinoscopy and we're seeing these plaques. Now, we're going to grab samples of that. Absolutely. You know, that kind of stuff. Or like. We see some bullshit happening in the sinus. We're going to poke a hole in the sinus and flush it out, and we're going to culture that, you Mm -hmm. know, something like that. We're not just going to swab. Okay. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Other testing, uh, PCR assays and DNA sequencing can be used on cultured fungal colonies or biopsy samples to identify the specific fungal species. Yeah, and I did see when I was looking one paper that was pretty recent, like it was maybe this year even, or or 2021, that was talking about using PCR on nasal swabs. And they had some promising results with that, but it's just one study and the sample size was small. And so I'm not ready based on that to be like, everyone shift gears. Like, I think we need more information about that. Correct. Yeah. My internist said the same thing, that they have these things, but she's not. She's like, Let's give it a year or two. Let's really see if this is what it is, and, and then we'll go for it if, yeah. it if it turns out to be good. Yeah. Well, JJ, mm-hmm. tell us about the prevalence of nasal aspergillosis and whether there are any predisposing factors. Nasal aspergillosis causes anywhere from 12 to 34 percent of chronic nasal disease in dogs. That's more than I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, they use that nose a lot. And that's true. That's true. It's in everything. (laughs) Infection in brachiocephalic breeds is rare because they have no nose. That's interesting. That's like the only advantage. Uh Uh-huh. 
of being brachycephalic, I think. This is the only time they've ever not been predisposed to something. Okay. Great. Affected dogs are usually those with normal or long-sized snouts. Okay. All go-in retrievers may have a breed predisposition. Ah, uh, man, join the damn club. Mm, they have predispositions for too many things. They do. At one time, collies were thought to have a breed disposition, but more recent studies have called that into question. And nasal aspergillosis usually occurs in young to middle-aged dogs, typically from one to seven years of age. Infection in dogs less than one year of age is uncommon, and there's no confirmed sex predilection. Yeah. So going back to that age thing for a second, this is a disease of young adult dogs, maybe middle age. But after you get over about seven, the predisposition shifts to nasal tumors if you're having mm-hmm. nasal yeah. discharge. That makes sense. Yeah. Thumbs right. down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big time. Well, let's talk about therapy. Okay. So you treat this typically with either systemic or topical antifungal agents or a combination of both things. Sometimes you have to use sequential systemic drugs. So one might not work. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of them won't work. You just have to pick another option. For invasive forms of the disease, a combination of topical therapy and systemic therapy is typically necessary. As far as systemic therapy goes, there are several different options that we have. Itraconazole or fluconazole are considered to be the most effective systemic therapies. Fluconazole is used less often because we have a concern that it might create resistance. In one study, a combination of posiconazole, terbinafine, and doxycycline was successful in treating dogs that had been refractory to other treatments. In that study, 10 out of 10 dogs achieved full or partial remission. Two dogs relapsed after the medications were discontinued. So that's a very interesting study. Thiabendazole and ketoconazole have been used in the past. However, they are no longer recommended because the efficacy for nasal aspergillosis with these drugs was found to be low, like less than 50%. Systemic treatment is needed for like 6 to 12 weeks, so we're not talking about like a one-week-and-done sort of situation. This is a long-term type of therapy. And then again, if one therapeutic option fails, just pick another. Uh, failing the first type of therapy does not mean that the pet will fail other types of therapy. As far as topical therapy goes, enalconazole can be used to irrigate the nose. Now, if you're wondering how that is done, you can use trephination, which means poking a hole in the in the sinus cavity. Face to get <laughs> yes. to the sinus cavity. <laughs> Elaine is excited because this is done in horses a lot, right? And in cows a lot. Yeah. I've uh, seen it in large animal. I've only seen it once in in a dog. Yeah. And I've seen it zero times in dogs and cats. Scared the absolute <laughs> crap out of me. I don't know why I was so scared over a dog versus horse. I'm just like, <laughs> you well, know, a horse has got a big old thing. You're aiming, you know, <laughs> right? Like it's, you know where you're dog, aiming. Everything is so closer together in a dog, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen a. You know what? I have seen a dog that was trephinated, but not purposefully. He trephinated himself. Oh, well, uh, that's not cool. Accidentally. Oh, God. Yeah, with a traumatic. Anyway, okay. So, next uh, situation. Um, okay, so you can trephinate the sinus, poke a hole in it, and place a little indwelling tube. 
and then use that to distill topical medicine into the sinuses. That is crazy stuff. Yikes. Okay. Now, uh, treatment of both chambers is recommended even if the discharge is unilateral. Itronasal clotrimazole has also been used successfully. Now, if you don't want to use a tree fine, you place it in dwelling tube. Irrigation has been described uh, with insertion of a catheter into the nasal passages or frontal sinuses using something called the Seldinger technique. I think Seldinger, Seldinger. Yeah, Selding. Yeah, Seldinger. Okay. Please look that up. Do not just do that based on this podcast. Look the technique up, please. No, don't do it yourself. Okay. Go recommend, go to an internist please. and have the internist do this. Okay. Now, this is obviously less invasive than trephination, okay? It's, it's less described when I was looking through the literature. Uh, the trephination seemed to be the thing that people do most often. Mm-hmm. Endoscopic administration has also been reported, but obviously that's a one-time deal, okay? You're not going to just like daily anesthetize and do rhinoscopy. Like, you're not going to do that. So that would just be a one-time thing. And then topical therapy is generally pretty safe. However, if the cribriform plate has significantly been affected, topical therapy should be used with caution because we don't know if that leaks back and gets into the brain, brain. like mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that sounds gross, but like what all it's real scary. potential problems. We we don't know what the level of risk is on that. But so generally when I was reading, they were like, hey, if you see cribriform plate damage, maybe avoid topical therapy actually. Mm-hmm. Just in case. <laughs> Surgical therapy has been done, which I was surprised by. Yeah, so, when you sent that to me, I was like, what? Yeah. So the success of medical therapy can be improved by debriding the fungal lesions in nasal and or sinus cavities. You can do that via rhinotomy or sinusotomy. So you just cut into the sinus and take that shit out. And um, surgical debridement has not been shown to provide better outcomes when you have the sinoorbital version. Uh, And then lastly, supportive therapy. If you're having the uh, trephination done and you're putting those indwelling tubes in, got to be real careful to not have the dog rip those out. Uh, so we need an e-collar. Sometimes animals don't want to eat because of medication side effects or because they can't smell their food because uh, they got a bunch of fungus sitting in their nose. So maybe an appetite stimulant or dietary change to something real delicious. Over-the-counter protective lubricants might need to be applied if you have that ulcerated nose. The particular one that I read about is something called Snout Soother, which is an amazing name. And I have never heard of this, but I need to order it immediately. Uh, And then animals with epistaxis need to be kept quiet because if they move around and act like a fool, they might get the bleeding started again. You might want to walk them with a harness so that you don't increase the pressure in the head and neck. Like if they're pulling on a collar. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about monitoring prognosis and zoonotic potential. So ongoing rechecks are needed, obviously. Mm -hmm. Biochemistry profiles are used to monitor for side effects of systemic antifungal drugs. We can consider repeating imaging to see if the lesions have resolved. Serial evaluation of antibody titers is not recommended because titers can remain elevated for a long time. That's right. Yeah. And that would be like, you're drawing blood and sending it out for mm-hmm. titers, uh, like um, like antibody titers, mm-hmm. not necessarily 
testing for the presence of the organism, as in some of the other tests that we talked about. And yeah. sometimes with serologic, like if you're doing it like four weeks after and you mm -hmm. test and do a titers, it will actually be higher mm -hmm. than when it was originally. Because basically what you've done, you've treated it, you've caused like an inflammatory response, mm -hmm. and, and it can actually cause that result to go higher. And then most of the time people are like, WTF, what the hell happens? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's sometimes, you know, you'll see that response when you do it four weeks afterwards. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Prognosis is good in those cases in which the infection is fully eliminated. However, this disease can be debilitating and difficult to treat, unfortunately. Even if the infection is resolved, chronic nasal discharge is possible, and relapse may occur and may be delayed as long as five years. Prolonged immunosuppression may occur after elimination of fungal organisms, and this is due to decreased lymphocyte blastogenesis response, but we don't know why that happens. Yeah. So the lymphocyte production tanks. Hmm. That's not good. No. Uh, as far as zoonotic potential goes, of course, people can get nasal aspergillosis and disseminated aspergillosis. However, the zoonotic potential is unclear. So wear your gloves, take precautions just in case. Definitely take precautions during surgery to avoid exposing animal health care workers to fungal organisms. So, Elena, what happened with our case? So, in this case, Benny uh, was placed on two weeks of intraconazole until they were seen at the internist and they did a chlortremazole infusion. So okay. they did a trephination and put it into the, into the sinus cavities. Mm -hmm. He was hospitalized overnight. He was given an injection of carprofen for all that post-infusion post swelling, which can happen. Okay. And he was discharged the next day. Um, he, it's currently an, an ongoing case, but from the last that I've heard, He's doing pretty good. They did have to switch him over to an, another oral antifungal, which we had discussed is not uncommon. If one is not working, switch to another yeah. one, which is exactly what it did. And got an email the other day that he is doing very, very well. That's exciting. Yeah. All right, Benny. <laughs> All right, Benny. Well, Elena, thank you so much for bringing us a case. You're very welcome. We super appreciate it, and we enjoyed the recording with you in person. I like this. Yes, it was fun. It this is, is very fun. fun. It is. <laughs> well, if you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show does. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.